Welcome to the Race Through Space Read-Along Podcast, written and hosted by David Hawk. Welcome back to the Race to Space Read-Along Podcast. My name is David Hawk, and I am the author of the Race to Space series, which is available now on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and Audible. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and that you're staying safe wherever you are. Over the last few weeks, I've told you all about how the Race to Space went from idea to screenplay and to published series. But I haven't told you much about my history with writing or my literary influences, so that will be our focus over the next few weeks as we finish up the Race to Space trilogy. I get a lot of odd looks when I discuss my original literary influence, so let me set up the context first, just so you have a better understanding of my answer. When I was growing up, we used to have the classic book fairs, and I loved them. They were all the rage, and they were one of the things I looked forward to most of the school year. It was also one of the few times I could convince my folks to give me a few bucks. The reason I loved them so much was because they always had several new Garfield comic books. They were just small books full of past comic strips, but I was addicted to them. So that would make my first literary influence Jim Davis, the author of Garfield. The Garfield books were funny and the humor was sarcastic, and my humor even to this day is just as sarcastic as he was. Plus, I hate Mondays just as much. Plus, the stories were simple enough for a six-year-old to read. The problem was that the books were really short, and I'd have to read the whole thing before the end of the day. At one of the book fairs in third grade, I decided to go forego my usual Garfield and the Calvin Hobbes books, and I decided to pick up the one with the coolest cover. I know this is a very unpopular opinion to say, but I do judge a book by its cover. Some of the best books I've ever read were because I thought that the covers were pretty cool. There was one book that caught my eye. It was a book called Hatchet by Gary Paulson. If you haven't seen it or read it, it's a story about a kid who survives a plane crash and has to survive in the wild with only a hatchet, obviously after the name. Within the first few pages of the book, the pilot dies and the plane crashes, and it hooked me. Gary Paulson's words were so tense and so descriptive that I literally couldn't put the book down. He made you feel like it was you that was stuck in the middle of the forest, and I was enamored with that book. Hatchet holds a couple of distinctions in my life. It was the first book that I ever was sad about finishing. If you've ever read a book that at the end you just dreaded getting to that last page because you know your journey was about to end, Hatchet was like that for me. I wanted it to keep going. Another distinction was it was also the first of the books that I actually read more than once. I have a tendency of just reading a book once and putting it away. There was something else that Hatchet did, though. It made me want to read more. As soon as I was done with Hatchet, I wanted another book to read. I'm not sure who it was. It was possibly my mom or my teacher. But someone told me that if I liked Hatchet, then I would also like The Lord of the Flies. That was the first book that ever made me cry. The book was even better than Hatchet, and now I wanted to read more and more. I read at least a dozen books that year, but none of them were nearly as good as Hatchet or The Lord of the Flies. And that really kind of bummed me out. I was reading fiction adaptations of my favorite movies, and I was reading books about subjects that I liked, but none of them were that good. I was desperate for a book that I could lose myself in again. My mom was also a voracious reader, and had amassed a really nice collection of books herself. There was one book in particular that really piqued my interest. It was a big, thick book by an author I'd never heard of before named Stephen King. The cover had a sewer grate, just like the one I had down the street from my house. And coming out of that grate was a clawed hand next to a paper boat. 
The book was called It. I asked my mom if it was okay to read it. And mind you, I was still in elementary school, and either she didn't remember all that went on in the book, or she was just messing with me, but she said that I could read the book. That book scared the hell out of me, and there was uh, plenty of other inappropriate things in that book that we won't talk about. It took a long time for me to finish that beast of a book, and it also gave me some pretty vivid nightmares, which I was smart enough not to tell my folks about because they would have taken the book away from me. But when I was done, it was the single best book that I've ever read, and is still, to this day, one of my top five books of all time. I love that feeling of being afraid, and the fact that it was so descriptive probably led to those nightmares I was talking about. It was also a book that stuck with me long after I'd finished it. The story was expertly crafted to pull out every feeling that I had about being a preteen. The book was literally about kids my own age finding an evil clown. But boy, do I love this book. And from that moment on, I became a devout Stephen King fan. He is absolutely a brilliant writer, and he is by far the greatest literary influence in my life. Next week, I'll tell you all about what it is about Stephen King that makes him such an incredible writer and why I like him so much. I'm really excited about this week's reading selection. We're starting on The Race Through Space 3, The End of Time. And this is the last of the original three novellas. And this is one of the most difficult stories I've had to write. So today, we are going to begin on Chapter 1, which is on page 140 of the Race to Space trilogy. Chapter 1 The missile exploded in the middle of the Silosian field just as the wormhole closed. The resistance camp was rendered to ashes. Huge boulders cascaded down the surrounding hills, piling up like tombstones. The night air crackled with burning shrubs and blue smoke rose into the air. On a planet billions of light years away, Neil held on to his father tightly. I'm so sorry, he said as he began to sob. His father patted the back of his head. There's nothing to be sorry about, he said. Neil pulled away from him and wiped his eyes with the sleeves of his shirt. He stepped back and then frantically looked at the ground and at Marie's feet. Marie noticed him looking toward her. What's up? she asked. Sagan, Neil said, choking back more tears. Now it was Marie who erupted into tears. She walked over to Neil and threw her arms around him. Dr. Lowell walked up from behind and wrapped his long arms around them both. Stephen did the same, and they stayed that way for several moments until the group broke apart. Marie stepped backward and wiped her nose with the sleeve of her hoodie. It's freezing. Can we hug it out where it's warm? she asked. Our camp is about a half mile from here, said Neil's father. It's not much, but it'll keep us warm. Neil's father took off his parka and handed it to him, while Dr. Lowell gave his to Marie. The four of them began the trek back to the black, monolithic structure that had been both home and hospital the past 11 days. Neil walked to his father, and despite all of the questions that lingered unanswered, nobody said a word. The planet was completely silent. The only sound came from the boots crunching through the snow. The day was losing light quickly. A crimson moon rose above the shelter. Neil was mesmerized at how the structure seemed to absorb the light around it, like a void had opened up in front of them. His father led them to an opening that was just barely visible in the darkening sky. Neil watched as he disappeared inside. Maria was the next to go in, and then Neil followed behind. He looked back and saw that Dr. Lowell had stopped and was looking into the sky. Trillions of stars began to twinkle above. Neil turned around and went inside. Neil followed his father and Marie as they made their way towards the small camp in the depths of the shelter. When they made it to the camp, the fire was little more than embers. His father dropped his pack to the floor. He reached inside, pulled out a thin plastic pouch, and tossed it into the fire. 
The flames grew until it was a respectable size. What is that? Neil asked. I honestly couldn't tell you. I got it from Yima, said his father. I just know that those little packages have kept this fire going. What do you have to eat? Marie asked. Not much. I have a few MREs, but we're getting critically low on supplies, said Neil's father. Neil reached into his pack and pulled out several metal pouches. I have Grandpa's pack, he said, swallowing a sob. He had a bunch of food in there. Dr. Lowell came walking out of the darkness. Well, he said, let's eat like we just got saved. Marie hitched her thumb towards him. I like that guy, she said to Neil. The four of them sat around the low fire and it bathed them in warmth. Each of them held small steaming aluminum mugs and they ate quietly. Neil sat with his father under his father's sleeping bag and Marie sat next to Dr. Lowell. I don't know if my stomach can take any more of this outer space cuisine, Marie said. I still can't believe you guys are here, said Dr. Lowell. You and me both, said Marie. What happened on Silosis? asked Neil's father. We landed right in the middle of a battle, Neil said. There was this huge explosion and we got separated. That's when Ort found me and Marie and we barely escaped. Ort took us to General Ruby and she helped us find Grandpa. They brought us to a tent where we fell asleep and something woke me up. If I didn't wake up, none of us would be here. What woke you up? His father asked. I don't know, Neil said, but the first thing I remembered hearing was an explosion in the distance and then a fire. I woke up Grandpa and Marie and we ran away from the fire and up in an open field. We watched as something landed on our tent where he had just been sleeping and it exploded. His father's head dropped and he ran his hands through his graying hair. Neil could see tears streaming down his father's dirty cheeks. The tears glowed orange in the firelight. I cannot begin to tell you how sorry I am, his father said. And to you as well, Marie. It's cool, Mr. Webb. We're okay, Marie said. So what happened next, asked his father. I opened a wormhole and locked onto your planet, said Neil. Just then there was an explosion at the edge of the field. It blew me through the singularity. The wormhole closed right after I came through. Now Grandpa and Sagan are stranded on Silosis. Who is Sagan? Dr. Lowell asked sheepishly. He's a creature we found on Amphibios, Neil said. He followed us through the wormhole when we went to Silosis. He was kind of like our pet, Marie said. Anyway, that's how we ended up here, Neil said. Have you checked your wormhole device to make sure it wasn't damaged? Asked his father. Neil winced. He hadn't made sure that his device wasn't broken. He quickly slid his left shirt sleeve up. The main menu glowed in his face and the words Initiate Wormhole were written at the top in gray lettering. A green power bar showed that the device was at a 20% charge. There was a tiny section of the screen missing from the top left corner of the device and there was a superficial scratch that ran the length of the screen. The device was okay. Neil let out a sigh of relief and gave his dad a thumbs up. What are we going to do about Grandpa? Neil asked. I mean, we have to find him, right? We will, Neil, said his father. When we go back to Silosis, we'll search for him while your device recharges. But we can't hesitate to move on to Glacis if we can't find him. We'll find him, Neil, said Dr. Lowell from across the fire. Yeah, Marie said. We got this. Race to Space 3, The End of Time, follows directly after the events of The Wave of Time. This story was incredibly hard for me to write. The reason was that although I knew how the series had to end, I actually had to move the story to that point. There were still two worlds to explore, the most important of which was Verilam. But even more than that, I now had to write the story with a four-person team. Each of them had their own personalities, relationships, and points of view. 
now had to combine them all for the most important journey of the series. In chapter one of The End of Time, this is the first time where Neil and his father are actually able to tell their stories face to face. I don't normally like to start off a story with a lot of backstory, but I felt it was necessary in this instance. I wanted it to be a story where you could pick up without having read the first couple of stories, and it'll give you an idea of what was going on. That's also something that I did with the upcoming Event Horizon 2 story. In Chapter 1, Neil tells his father all about what had just happened on Silosis and that Grandpa Al was missing. And that's when they all agree to go and look for him. This is the first big change from my original idea to the direction I decided to take this story. Originally, I was going to keep the story moving forward. The group would go straight to Glacies and then on to Verilom, but I needed to continue my idea of having a race within the race through space. I couldn't keep repeating the idea that every new world is dangerous, and that there had to be some other worlds that were peaceful. But then that set up another problem. There still had to be some element of danger in the story. I couldn't have the most important story of the series be nothing but rainbows and sunshine. The team had to earn their reward. So that was when I decided to send them back to the most dangerous world of the series, Silosis. Chapter 2 Neil's father put his arm around him, and he laid his head on his father's chest. He looked over the fire and saw Marie and Dr. Lowell in an excited conversation. He craned his neck up to his father. Will you tell me about the other planets you've been to? he asked. His father smiled back. Neil could tell that it was a tired smile, and he couldn't imagine what his father had endured in the last few days. The last two planets that I traveled to were called Glacis and Verilom. Also, my first experience with Silosis was much different, said his father. It's a really long story. Are you sure you want me to tell you? Yes, Neil replied. Yes, I do. All right, then, said his father. Each time I went to a new planet, I did so mostly blind. We knew the coordinates of each of the planets attached to the wormhole path, but what we didn't know was what kind of planets we were going to. How do you know if the planets you were going to were inhabitable? asked Marie from across the fire, startling Neil. His father looked startled too, but quickly recovered and replied, Great question, Marie. The first time I opened up a wormhole to another planet, I would have Ralph analyze it while the singularity was open, while I observed the terrain. You can learn a lot in 30 seconds. Two years earlier. Stephen stood inside a rustic building made of dark wooden glass. Standing before him was Nyla, his reptilian skin reflecting the light coming from the ceiling. Stephen was wearing a black shirt and black pants made of simian woven silver. On his left arm was a small iPad looking device. I wish you safety on your journey, Nyla said as he shook Stephen's offered hand. I want to thank you for all you've done for me here, Stephen said. Nyla turned towards the door to the room and started to walk out. He paused and turned around. Do you have any more movies? He asked, referring to the collection of 80s movies that he had given to the Tryan and had become widely popular in the city of Galleon. Perhaps with that Ferris Bueller character. I do, Stephen said. I'll load them onto your mainframe before I leave. Be sure to check out the one called The Explorers. Yes, I will be sure to do that, Nyla said. Nyla exited the room, leaving Stephen alone. He swiped the screen of his device and a blue laser beam shot from it, ending in a glowing singularity with the Silosian daylight spilling through. Stephen walked through the wormhole and onto a field of short green grass. The ground was soft beneath his feet. 
He looked around at his new surroundings, and all he could see were endless rocky hills going off in every direction, and the short grass growing between them. Stephen spent the day setting up his tent against the side of a hill and exploring the area surrounding the camp. He observed several fat bugs. One of them looked like a baseball-sized ladybug, except it was black with violet stripes down its wings. A cloud of quarter-sized flying insects buzzed around a puddle of muddy water. Stephen thought that there was nothing remarkable about the planet. He explored the surroundings for a week, never once seeing or hearing an animal. There also didn't seem to be any sign of intelligent life. He decided to move on to his next planet along the wormhole track. He opened his wormhole onto a cold, icy world. What you got, Ralph? Stephen asked. Temperatures are minus 22 degrees Celsius, Ralph said. The atmosphere is comparable to Earth, but there is much less carbon and methane in the air. The wormhole opened onto an icy, flat surface. Stephen could see enormous ice cliffs in the distance. Frigid air billowed in through the wormhole, and it sank, freezing the ground like a brinicle in the Antarctic. The wormhole snapped closed. Stephen knew he needed proper gear to visit the icy world. He traveled back to Earth and re-geared, finding all the necessary equipment at a climb shop in Mountain View. He also rigged a heat system inside his cold-weather gear. It took him nearly a week to return to his small patch of grass on Silosis. Stephen tapped the screen to his device, and the blue laser shot out, and a glittering icy world expanded within the singularity. The light from the world stung his eyes. Once his eyes adjusted, he could see a bright white sun floating in the sky above a world of snow and ice. He stabilized the wormhole, put on his red gloves, and stepped through the singularity. Stephen's breath instantly crystallized in the cold air. We are at minus 35 degrees Celsius, Ralph said to a pair of earbuds in Stephen's ears. I would recommend you find shelter and activate the heaters in your suit. I can't even feel the cold. My body is already numb, Stephen replied. He sluggishly tapped on the wormhole device and swiped the screen until he came up to a screen linked to the cold weather suit. He tapped the screen again and there was a soft whirring sound coming from inside of the suit as the internal heaters kicked on. The sky was a deep cobalt blue and there were no clouds in the sky. The sun reflected off of the snow and he could feel the skin on his face starting to burn. He lifted a neoprene mask over his face and he lowered his ski goggles over his eyes. The goggles reduced the brightness of the world and for the first time he was able to survey the planet. He stood on a long, barren expanse of ice. Encircling the plain were massive towers of deep blue ice that towered thousands of feet into the air. He knelt down and brushed away the surface layer of snow to see what was below. Under a foot of snow was a translucent block of ice with trillions of frozen air bubbles trapped inside. The ice, exposed to the sun for the first time in a millennium, began to turn into vapor. An explosion startled Stephen, and he fell backward into the snow and onto his butt. The sound blasted from one ice cliff to the next, and it reverberated for nearly a minute. He stood up and surveyed the ice plane. There was nothing visible that could have made that sound. Ralph, did you measure anything just now? All atmospheric readings are unchanged since you have arrived, Dr. Webb, Ralph said. Can you play the recording from the last five minutes, he asked. Certainly, Dr. Webb. The first sound he heard was the air sizzling after the singularity closed. Then he heard the sound of the heaters inflating his suit. Next was the sound of footfalls in the snow. And then there was complete silence. Stephen listened to the recording nervously, as if he were waiting for the clown and the jack-in-the-box to pop out. Then came the sound of the explosion. Stephen took a step backward directly onto the exposed ice. 
As soon as his foot hit the ice, it sent a deep crack running across the plain towards the ice cliffs directly ahead of him. In the distance, he could see tall sheets of ice calving off from the cliff face, sending puffs of snow and ice into the air. He dropped onto his knees and used his arms to plow snow back onto the exposed ice. The world once again fell silent. He strained to hear anything, but there were no other sounds. He exhaled a deep breath. The air puffed out from his face mask and crystallized in the air, falling back to the surface as snow. Ralph, why would the ice crack like that? It is possible that the ice has not experienced direct sunlight for a considerable amount of time, and its reaction to the heat of the sun caused it to fracture, Ralph said. Stephen heard footsteps behind him. He slowly turned around, terrified to see what it was. What he saw caused him to scream in terror and drop to his knees, covering his head under his arms. Pisha Malu, said a voice from above. He didn't move. Pisha Malu, the voice said again, more urgently this time. He peeked out at the creature standing before him. It was at least eight feet tall and covered in white fur. Its furry feet were as wide as a manhole covers, and its legs were as thick as tree trunks. Stephen slowly looked up at the creature and saw its long, muscular arms covered in fur and ending in thick, black fingers that carried a blue spear. The being standing before him wore a sleeveless white linen robe that had a black belt tied around its waist. The creature's face was hairless and gray. It had thick lips and a white nose. A white beard circled the creature's mouth. To Stephen, the creature resembled what he always envisioned a yeti would look like. Pishu Malu, the creature said, motioning for him to stand up. Stephen stood up slowly. The Yeti pulled him close, raised his fist towards the sky, and let out a series of clicking sounds. An explosion shot through the ice, and the ice plane ruptured in half. Stephen and the Yeti were knocked backward by the sudden movement of the ice. The creature clicked again, and Stephen heard a shrieking sound in the distance. A shadow peered over the ice far across the plain. He looked towards the sky, and there was nothing there, but the shadows grew closer. He crawled cautiously backward as the shadow came upon him. He wanted to run, but he knew there was nowhere to go. Just as the shadow was about to overtake him, he saw something that looked like feathers hovering in the air. The Yeti clicked again, and a massive winged animal landed in front of Stephen, kicking up a cloud of snow. The animal retracted its hundred-foot-long wingspan. The creature had white and blue feathers that camouflaged it against the sky. It stood on four broad legs, and it had a tail that was as long as its enormous wingspan, and it was covered in white scales. Its feathered body was long and lean, almost horse-like, and it ended in a long face. Its large, round nostrils flared and its breath crystallized in the frigid air. On the animal's back was the largest saddle Stephen had ever seen. Long leather straps were wrapped around its belly, securing the saddle in place. Stephen heard the crunching of snow behind him, and he turned his head just as the Yeti marched past him towards the winged creature. The Yeti climbed onto the creature's back and took his place in the saddle. He looked over to Stephen and motioned for him to come. He was hesitant at first, until another explosion shot through the ice plain. He ran to the winged animal, and the Yeti let out two loud clicks. The animal lowered its wings. Stephen used it to scramble onto its back and position himself behind the Yeti's saddle. A geyser of water shot from the crack right behind him. The Yeti let out a series of clicks, and the winged animal extended its long legs and leapt into the air. Stephen grabbed onto the Yeti's back and held on as tight as he could. The animal's wings unfurled and it caught the air, sending the three of them high above the ice plane. When he was in the air, Stephen could see the expanse of the plane below him. It was an enormous circle, bordered by ice cliffs. You shall the Yeti said. Rolf, have you been able to translate their language? Stephen asked quietly, 
I'm sorry, Dr. Webb, but I need a larger sample size of the creature's language before I can translate, answered Ruff. Dang it, Stephen whispered. The shocky Ronsati, the Yeti said as it pointed off to its left. Stephen turned his head to see a shimmering palace rising hundreds of feet into the air. Buildings made of snow and ice spiraled from its base and it seemed to go on for miles. The winged creature ascended lower to the ground, and that's when Stephen began to see hundreds of yetis moving along roads that snaked between the buildings. The yeti in front of Stephen let off a series of clicks, and the winged creature responded by rising higher into the frigid air towards the spire of the ice palace. There was a large opening at the top, but it was dark and Stephen couldn't see what was inside. In front of the door was a large, round balcony made of massive blue blocks of ice with two yetis standing in the center. The yeti on the left wore a blue robe and the one on the right wore a black robe. They held long torches made of dark material. A glowing orange fire was the only color other than blue or white that Stephen had seen since he had arrived on Glacies. He could hear another explosion from the ice plane echoing in the distance. The winged creature circled the spire and landed on the balcony, just in front of the two yetis with torches. The animal gently lowered its wing to the ground. The yeti in front of Stephen slipped off of the creature and went to the two torchbearers. Stephen could hear a long series of barks, clicks and growls that passed between the three yetis. He slipped down the creature's neck and kneeled next to one of its thick legs. Raka Johnsetti, said the torchbearer on the left, the shortest of the three yetis. He pointed towards Stephen. Talaka Ronsetti, the creature said. The high priestess will not be pleased that you brought an alien to the palace. Stephen was confused at first, but soon realized he could understand what the yetis were saying because Ralph had translated their language. The yeti on the right put his arm around the one that brought Stephen to the tower. Do not listen to Dyson, young Telsar, the creature said. The high priestess will be excited to meet an alien. I have only heard stories of their existence. Telsar turned around and locked eyes with Stephen. With both hands, he beckoned him to join them as if he were calling on a puppy. Stephen stood up and took two sluggish steps towards the towering figures ahead of him. He took his place next to Telsar. Where did you find this strange-looking creature? Dyson asked. I found him on the ice plane when Chandra and I were surveying, Telsar said. He had exposed the ice to the sun and caused it to crack. We heard the ruptures, Dyson said, looking displeased. Stephen noticed that he was still wearing his snow goggles, his snow mask, and puffed-out cold-weather suit. He pushed the goggles up onto his forehead and pulled down the snow mask. Better keep the suit inflated, Ralph said in Stephen's earpiece. It makes you look bigger. Dyson looked directly at him and scowled. Disturbing the ice is a crime and should be punished as such, he said. No leniency shall be given. Talsar looked over to Stephen and then to the yeti in the black robe. Kasi, Dyson is being unreasonable. The alien is harmless. He doesn't know our laws and shouldn't be punished. We should be trying to communicate with this creature and finding out where he came from. Stephen quietly cleared his throat, trying not to intrude too much on the Yetis' conversation. Telsar turned his head towards Stephen and motioned for him to join them. He took five reluctant steps and was suddenly surrounded by the three massive creatures. Why have you summoned me? Telsar asked. I have something for you, Stephen said. Telsar looked confused. Stephen pointed to his ear. How do I say that I am a friend? Stephen asked loud to Ralph, confusing Telsar further. Friend is Tana, Ralph said. Stephen patted his chest with his right hand. Tana, he said. Telsar's mouth dropped in disbelief. Tana, Stephen said, louder so that the other yetis could hear him. Friend? Telsar said, but it sounded more like a question. Ralph, what is the word for gift? Stephen asked. I have yet to encounter that world in their language, Ralph said. Stephen had an idea. 
Tana, he said, pointing to his right ear. Then he took out one of his earpieces and raised it into the air. Telsar took the earpiece from Stephen, and it looked tiny in his large hand. Stephen raised it to his ear and pantomimed putting the piece into his ear. Telsar looked confused, and that's when Stephen noticed that he hadn't seen any ears on the Yetis. He had an idea. He cupped his mouth with his hand and made a loud sound that echoed from the balcony, and then he cupped his ear with his hand to indicate that his ears were for hearing. He could see the light bulb click on inside Telsar's mind. The Yeti pulled back his long white hair from the side of his face, revealing a long blue ear that was adorned with at least two dozen blue earrings made of ice. Telsar put the earpiece into his ear and it instantly fell out. He put the piece back into his ear again and held it into place with his right hand. Hello, I am Stephen of Earth, Stephen said. Ralph translated his words into the Yeti's language. Telsar looked shocked, went backward, and slipped and fell onto his butt. The balcony shook under his weight. Friend, Stephen said, and he could see Telsar relax. I am Stephen from a race of beings called humans on the planet Earth, he said. Stephen. And who are you? He asked the Yeti, but was met with silence. He pointed his chest. Stephen. Telsar stood up. I am Telsar, said the Yeti, and pointed behind him. That is Dyson and Cassie. What are you saying to the alien? Dyson asked. Telsar, as long as you have that thing in your ear, you can understand what I'm saying, Stephen said. Only half of what he said was translated for the Yeti, but it was enough for Telsar to understand. You understand Telsar? Telsar asked. Stephen nodded his head. Yes. A smile grew across the Yeti's blue face, revealing a mouth of square white teeth. Telsar grabbed Stephen's shoulder, and not realizing his strength, sent him sprawling across the balcony. He slid several feet on his chest, and when he finally came to a stop, he was looking at two pairs of very large, furry feet. He was hesitant to look up or move, afraid of how the Yetis would react. What is that before you, Dyson? asked a voice from behind the two Yetis. Stephen could not see where it came from. There were a series of thuds from behind Stephen as Telsar moved toward him, and then he felt himself go weightless as he was pulled upward. A yeti female in a flowing white dress stood in the doorway leading from the balcony to the ice palace. She was slim and at least seven feet tall. She was covered in silky white fur. Her face was dark blue and her eyes were completely white. A thick braid that extended from the back of her head and slid on the ground like a train of a wedding dress. Four yetis in black cloaks surrounded her. Two of them carried blue torches, similar to the ones Dyson and Kasi carried. The other two carried spears. Telsar gently lowered Stephen onto his feet, but the three Yetis turned towards the female and dropped one knee, leaving Stephen the only figure standing. Telsar put a meaty hand on Stephen's shoulder, forcing him to his knee. The Yeti woman and her entourage stood in front of the group. Stephen locked eyes with her, and he felt her studying him. She shifted her gaze to a guilty-looking Telsar. I bid you to rise and to explain yourself, the female Yeti said. Then Telsar stood up in front of Stephen, blocking his view. The female yeti in the white dress pushed Dyson and Cassie aside and now stood directly in front of him. She was beautiful and her eyes were as cold as the ice cliffs. Stephen thought she smelled like wildflowers, which he thought was impossible given that he couldn't see any plant life on this planet. Who is a stranger? she asked, looking over to Telsar. I found this alien on the ice plane, said Telsar. Unless my ears deceive me, it has disrupted the ice, she said in a questioning but not angry voice. That is a serious offense. Forgive me, High Priestess, Telsar said. I believe he is the creature that our ancestors spoke of. How could you be sure? The High Priestess asked. 
I cannot be absolutely certain, Telsar answered. He is much smaller than I expected. One thing I am certain of is that he is not of our world. Where is he from? asked the high priestess. The more words the Yeti spoke, the more detailed Raph's translations became. Stephen sheepishly raised his hand, drawing the attention of the high priestess. He looked over at Telsar. Please tell the high priestess that I am a friend, he said. A look of disgust crossed Dyson's face. How dare this creature speak before he has been addressed by the high priestess? He snarled angrily. This alien is our friend, Telsar said. He comes from a planet called Earth. He has given me a machine that has allowed me to understand his words. Telsar took out the earpiece that hung loosely inside his ear. He handed it to one of the guards with spears, who then handed it to the high priestess. She moved her white hair aside and placed the earpiece into her ear. Does Telsar tell the truth, creature? The high priestess said, asking Stephen directly. Do you understand my words? Yes, he said, and watched as a look of wonder crossed the priestess's face. What a marvelous creation, she said. Stephen of Earth, welcome to Blazes. I am High Priestess Kasho. I am honored to make your acquaintance, he said. I welcome you to the Ice Palace. You will be our welcomed guest, said the High Priestess. I must object, Dyson said, scowling. The High Priestess snapped her fingers in Dyson's direction, and he flinched. Dyson, she said. We will show hospitality to this creature. He is no threat to us. Thank you, Stephen said. I won't be here long. I just need to wait for my device to charge, and then I will be on my way. I hope you will reconsider my offer, Stephen of Earth, said the High Priestess. We have much to learn from each other. In Chapter 2, we visit Glacies. In this chapter, Stephen recounts his first adventures to the ice planet. And although the story takes its turn back to Silosis, I really wanted to keep visiting New Worlds as part of the narrative. Glacies was more inspired by Enceladus in our own solar system more than it was inspired by Hoth of Star Wars. And at first I had a really tough time coming up with what kind of world Glacies would be. It was obviously made of ice. In fact, Glacies is Latin for ice. Next, I had to decide of who inhabited the planet. Subsequently, at the same time I was writing this story, I watched a show about a mythical creature called the Yeti, or Bigfoot, and that inspired me to create a creature that I fell in love with. The Yetis of Glacies are similar to polar bears in the regard that they have white fur and dark skin. The fur keeps them warm and the dark skin absorbs the sunlight. Glacies has less gravity than Earth and there's also a lot more oxygen. That allows the creatures to grow bigger than on Earth. I had also just got done coming up with two worlds where the intelligent species were modern and advanced. So I wanted to make Glacies less advanced. Plus I wanted to be more like a fantasy story. So I made it with winged riders, swords, and princesses, but still rooted into the sci-fi elements of the Race to Space story. The first thing Stephen did was disrupt the ice by exposing it to sunlight. The Glacies ice is ancient and is never exposed to sunlight. There can be an explosive reactions when you mix sun and ice, as long as the sun excites certain chemicals in the ice. And that is when he is rescued by Telsar. The name Telsar was inspired by Nikola Tesla, who is one of the greatest minds to ever live. Telsar takes Stephen to the ice castle, where he is confronted by Dyson and Cassie. Dyson is named after Thomas Edison, a guy who is not a nice person and could be very cruel at times, even though his inventions have changed the world. Dyson is just an unlikable and ruthless character. Cassie, on the other hand, is named after Giovanni Cassini, 
an astronomer from the 1700s that discovered the moons around Saturn and is the namesake of the Cassini probe that is currently orbiting Saturn right now. In this chapter, we see some of Ralph's limitations. Although he can translate alien language in real time, he needs to be able to study the language first. Stephen had to collect big enough sample size for Ralph to analyze the language so he could translate it. And when I came up with the Yeti language, I wanted to make it flow and sound as if we were being spoken in Norwegian. Stephen is introduced to the High Priestess. Her name is Kasho, and her name is from Caroline Shoemaker. And Caroline Shoemaker happened to be an astronomer that at one time held the record for the most comments found, and the Shoemaker-Levy comet was named after her. Finally, this chapter wraps up with Stephen and the High Priestess becoming friends. Chapter 3 Dr. Lowell, Marie, and Neil stared at Stephen intently as he recounted his trip to Glacies. That night, I ate some weird fish thing and I slept on a bed of snow, he said. I found out that the beings that live on Glacies are called Tartarians. They're the only intelligent species on their planet, but their flora and fauna are quite diverse. There is no land on their planet, only water and ice. Why is that one dude so mad about the ice? Dr. Lowell asked. I never really figured that out. I could tell it was a place of reverence, either a culturally significant site or a tomb. What was Verilam like? asked Neil. Sorry dude, I'm tapping out for the night, Marie said. That's a good idea, Stephen said. Let's get some shut-eye. His son groaned his displeasure. I know, but we've had a long day. We'll pick right up tomorrow, Stephen said. Okay, Neil said reluctantly. Good night, son. Good night, dad. Stephen slept for several dreamless hours until he was awakened by the sound of an alarm in his ear. His eyes flashed open. In the light of the fire, he watched the vapor from his breath billow from his mouth and immediately crystallize. The air within the shelter was frigid. Ralph, what's the alarm? He asked, whispering, so he didn't wake the rest of the group. I have detected a dramatic pressure change in the atmosphere, and the temperature has dropped below zero degrees Fahrenheit, minus 17 degrees Celsius, Ralph explained. What do you think it means? Stephen asked. The atmospheric conditions on Flora are roughly the same as those on Earth, as is the pressure. The pressure I have detected is greater than that of a Category 5 hurricane, Ralph said. When I factored in the corresponding drop in temperature, I concluded that there is an approaching ice storm that will cause Flora's temperature to drop several hundred degrees. What does that mean for us? Stephen asked. This time he failed to whisper and awoke Dr. Lowell. His friend quietly slipped out of his sleeping bag and tiptoed over to him. The ice storm will flash freeze anything it comes in contact with, Ralph said in his ear. Neil's wormhole device is charged at its minimum level to initiate a wormhole, and I suggest you leave quickly. Stephen immediately popped up from the ground. I need everyone up and ready to go in two minutes, he shouted. Neil was shocked awake and noticed Marie was awake too. Neil saw the look of concern on his father's face, and that cleared the sleep from his mind. What is it? he asked, worried. No time to explain, his father said. I just need you and Marie to grab your packs and take us back to Silosis. Can I give you the device? he asked. No, his father answered. The device will only work for you. It's been locked onto your biosignature. Marie was up quickly. Neil saw that she had the hood of her green's Mysteries of the Universe hoodie cinched up only so her eyes were visible. It's freezing in here, she said through chattering teeth. Yes, said his father. That's why we need to get going. Well, Marie said, let's roll. Neil, take us back to Silosis, said his father. He tapped the screen to his wormhole device and it shot out a blue laser that ended into an expanding singularity. 
He saw a scorched black earth within the glowing wormhole, and it took his breath away. He thought to himself that there was no way Grandpa Al or Sagan could have survived that. Marie, go! His father shouted. Just then a loud cracking sound filled the shelter. Neil looked to his left towards the entrance to the shelter. He couldn't see anything in the darkness, but he felt that the cracking sound meant death if they didn't hurry through the wormhole. Will, go! Stephen shouted. Dr. Lowell ran through the singularity, turned around and shouted, Run! Now! Neil's father grabbed his arm and pushed him towards the singularity. Dr. Lowell grabbed him by his other arm and he pulled him through. He watched as his father ran towards the singularity, but instead of passing through, he hesitated. Neil watched his father take a final glance at the shelter that had kept him alive for the last 11 days. Neil could see the ice creeping around his father. It passed a low fire and encased in ice. Dad, he shouted, watch out! That was all the prompting his father needed. He took two long strides and passed through the singularity. Neil watched as the singularity began to close, but it stopped. The wormhole was frozen open. Cold air rushed in through the open wormhole and turned the ground to ice. The group collectively stepped back several steps. The singularity began to glow red and then bright orange as it fought to close. The wormhole collapsed with a tremendous crack and it shot out a powerful shockwave that knocked the four of them off their feet. Neil was knocked unconscious. In chapter 3 is where we start with the danger. Because the Florence sun is starting to dim, it causes a cold weather storm to freeze the world, including their shelter. My inspiration for the scene, where the ice crawls over and freezes everything, comes from watching Brynicle sink to the ocean floor and freeze everything around it. The team is able to make it to Silosis, but it is so cold in Flora that it actually froze the singularity in place. There's a lot of downward energy being blocked, and so it built up heat and pressure, enough to thaw the ice, and then it snapped closed. But when the singularity closed, all of that energy was released like a bomb, and the shockwave knocked everyone out and alerted the nearby state forces. And that's where we're going to end this week's episode of the Race Through Space Read Long Podcast. Next week I'll be given a discussion about my love of Stephen King books and how my aspirations to be him has driven my love of writing my entire life. Thank you all so much for joining me. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you follow us on whichever podcast platform that you're listening on. And please like and share each episode. Also, if you'd like to throw down a couple bucks to support Truckee Pacific Productions, you can go to our Venmo, at Truckee Pacific. If you want to shoot me any comments, you can go and email me at DaveTheWriter303 at gmail.com. Please check out my Facebook which is at Dave the Writer 303 on Instagram at David Hawk 303, as well as on Twitter at David Hawk 303. Have a good night, be safe, and if you happen to be outside, make sure you glance up at the stars. Have a good night. The Race Through Space Read Long Podcast is a Chucky Pacific production. For comments or sponsorship inquiries, please go to Truckee Pacific Productions at gmail.com.